Luke chapter 19, verses 45, uh, 40, 40, 45, pardon me. <clears throat> I knew it was verse 40, forgive me. Verse 40, all the way through chapter 20, verse 8. <clears throat> so Luke chapter 19, verse 40, through chapter 20, verse 8. Forgive my confusion. Let's hear God's infallible, inerrant word. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you, and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, It is written, In my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on to every word he said. On one of the days, while he was teaching the people in the temple <clears throat> and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him. And they spoke, saying to him, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, or who is the one who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you a question, and you tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? They reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. <clears throat> so they answered that they did not know where it came from, and Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray. O oh, great God, we pray that you would add your blessing to the reading and preaching of your word, and we pray that it would be for the good of our very souls. We ask, Lord, your blessing upon your people as we receive together this word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> this is the week of the Lord's death. This Sunday, this is the last week of the Lord uh, prior to his death. The last uh, day recorded was uh, Sunday when he made triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And the crowds proclaimed, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. It was a glorious attestation of Christ who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And all the crowds were there in humble recognition. Many of the disciples of Jesus proclaiming these things. Monday, Jesus came into the temple and cleansed yet again. Tuesday, the chief priests come, the scribes and the Pharisees, and they question his authority, and there's a confrontation recorded in chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. 
as soon the crucifixion will come on Friday. So this is the last week of the life of the Lord prior to his resurrection. And here are these these two days, Monday and Tuesday, when Jesus cleanses the temple uh, and uh, is confronted by these Pharisees and scribes and the rulers and chief priests. We see four things in this passage this morning, the first of which is sorrow. Sorrow. Jesus, when he enters into Jerusalem, looks out over the city, and he sees this city with his own eyes. And he has been to Jerusalem at least two other times, as recorded in John's Gospel. He has been there before, and he has seen this city, but he sees its unbelief, and he sees its rebellious perspective towards him. And as he approaches on that Sunday in his triumphal entry, he hears the loud hosannas and blessings of the crowd in his ears. As he sees and observes this city, he is weeping. And he cries out over it, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Jesus looks out upon the city, sees the many souls there, Uh, Some, we we believe, two and a half million people by virtue of the 250,000 sheep that have been offered during that year, according to Josephus, one early church historian. Jesus speaks these words over this city. The days will come upon you when your enemies will, uh, will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will levy you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. They did not see, so many of those who lived within Jerusalem did not see that Jesus was the Messiah, that the visitation of God come with salvation upon mankind had come. They had rejected him. They had refused him. They would not own him as the one who came in the name of the Lord with salvation upon his lips. He would preach the gospel later on in chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. He would proclaim the gospel. The teacher, the, 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 the congregation, uh, the, the, the vast numbers of people would hang upon his words. But the chief priests, the rulers, the scribes and Pharisees, and many of the crowds would not. And so Jesus is prophesying the destruction of the temple, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, the Sanhedrin, even the land itself, which would occur in 70 A.D. when Romans came and they destroyed utterly as they threw up great barriers and great uh, great elevations of, of dirt a road up against the very walls of Jerusalem and then made their way up onto those walls and broke them down such that there was nothing left but three towers in order for the Romans to show how great a city this was, that this broken down city on which not one stone stood upon another of its walls and of its great palaces and buildings, that all would see and say the Roman Empire is a great empire for they have destroyed a great city. The streets would run with the blood of children, men and women, boys and girls would be thrust through with Roman swords. 
the Romans would decimate them utterly and completely. And Jesus is crying out over what he sees in his mind's eye, beholding the prophecy and an understanding of the wisdom of God. We might say, well, what, what about the innocence of all these people? And, and what about these little children who are also innocent? And yet, consider, if you will, for a moment, Luther's words. If I were God, Martin Luther said, if I were God and the world had treated me as it treated him, Jesus, I would kick, kick the wretched thing to pieces. Uh, we all understand retribution. Every last one of us understands the necessity of um, punishment when great and deep infractions have been committed. Consider a holy God against whom a massive generation had sworn the refusal to accept his beloved son and to seek him out for salvation. And yet Jesus weeps. The heart of Jesus is observed here. His grieving soul at the rejection of his people precisely in this, that they have rejected the day of salvation, that they have rejected the day of grace. They have seen, they have observed great miracles, the resurrection of Lazarus being called from the grave. They have seen blind men and women whose eyes have been healed such that they now see and deaf ears that have been unstopped such that they can now hear. They have observed the miracles of wine turned in, or water turned into wine. They have observed persons who were born broken and who have been healed and restored. They have heard the teachings of Jesus. They have heard the proclamation of John the Baptist, of one who has come, whose sandals he is unworthy to untie. And yet they have rejected Jesus. Or they have been curious about him, but they have not accepted him as Savior and as Lord. They have not believed in him unto everlasting salvation. They still cling to a righteousness of their own, a broken sacrificial system, both hypocritical and unable to provide for the filth of sin. The heart of Jesus is observed as he looks at these people who have rejected him, and he is brokenhearted, he is filled with sorrow, he is filled with grief over the fact that they have rejected him and they will die in their sins as a judgment of God. For we know that in the last day, God will judge every soul according to their sins, unless they have been made righteous in the Lord Jesus Christ, and the blood of Christ speaks of better things for them. They must believe. They must trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. They must not trust in themselves. They must bring all their sins to God, acknowledging all of them fully and completely, acknowledging and crying out of their need of Christ and of salvation and grace and forgiveness and pardon. Barring this, every soul, every sinful soul, Every wicked soul, every refusing soul, every rebellious soul, every soul that has rejected Jesus Christ, has not believed in him whom God has provided, will die everlastingly, unfailingly, and forever. And Jesus looks up out upon those people, and what has he done? 
Uh, what does he do? He grieves. He's filled with sorrow. And we look at the heart of Jesus this morning as we consider Jesus' perspective on an unbelieving world. Remember, they're rejecting not us, but Him. They're rejecting Him. And He is the eternal Son of God. He is God who has created them. He is their Creator. He is Lord of Lords, King of Kings, the Prince of Peace. And they will not have Him. And what does He do? He weeps. He weeps. I know we live in a day and age when we feel deeply about political matters and we can look upon people who do things in exceedingly odd and bizarre ways and we think how blind are they, they cannot see the truth. And we would readily criticize them and tear them to pieces and ridicule them and laugh at them. And yet, In Jesus, we do not see that laughter. What we do see is weeping sorrow. Do we share his grief over the lost? Do we share his grief over those who do not know the reason for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ? J.C. Ryle says on this passage, we know but little of true Christianity if we do not feel a deep concern about the souls of unconverted people. Lazy indifference about the spiritual state of others may doubtless save us much trouble. To care nothing whether our neighbors are going to heaven or hell is no doubt the way of the world. Have you prayed for the lost this last week? Have you prayed for your lost loved ones who have no interest in Christ, whose eyes have been blinded, whose ears have been stopped up, and perhaps they've even ridiculed you, but are you grieving for them? Do you weep over them and ask God to be merciful? Do you cry out to God and do you storm heaven itself, as it were, asking of God, Lord, save, Lord, save. We see secondly here indignation. John also records a previous cleansing of the temple early in the ministry of Christ, wherein he he actually braids a a, a great whip of leather cords, and he begins whipping and causing a tremendous ruckus there in the temple. This is the second time now as Jesus enters Jerusalem when he cleanses it. They seem to have not learned anything about the wickedness of what they are doing in their transaction of business in the temple itself. The problem is that in that time, there was a struggle for the pilgrims. When you came during high holy days of the church, uh, drawn before God and, and bringing sacrifices and offerings, the struggle was for pilgrims who would come into the city and they had a necessity for a spotless sacrifice. And perhaps they came in days earlier and who's going to keep that little animal and feed that little animal and water that little animal in the in their accommodations. And try to go to a, uh, a motel room today and a pet-friendly one. Uh, not having a pet at home, I really don't want to stay in a pet-friendly one, but, but let's just say you have a pet at home. Isn't it rather difficult to stay in a motel with your pet? Uh, they're few and far between, but I think increasingly so, more so in our day nonetheless, but... But it's difficult. 
It's also difficult to bring an animal without defect, which is God's command, all of all that way, however far you might come, to get into Jerusalem and to go to the priest and then to receive from the priest an accommodation for that animal, saying, yes, this is a good animal. Oftentimes these priests were corrupt, and the pilgrim would come in with a seemingly perfect animal without spot or blemish, which was God's command regarding sacrifices. And the priest, wanting to pat his own pockets, would say, well, I think there is a defect here in this little paw. This won't do. You'll have to find another animal. So the only place to do that was go into the outer courts and the court of the Gentiles and to buy an animal there. And of course, the prices were raised exorbitantly higher. Inflation was significant during those days of feasting. And if you needed an animal, there were 250,000 Josephus records there in that year, particularly, supposedly at least at some point uh, in, in the years of when the temple was still in operation. So pilgrims had it tough. It was a difficult thing, and they were necessarily dependent upon what was provided there in the temple. The economy of worship had become a central thrust. Thievery and deception and profit had become more meaningful than worship and service and charity. It's no less that way in our day, isn't it? Pastors stealing from plates. Church treasurers stealing from the bank. ATM cards secretly being used. I've heard of it all. Pastors with one and a half million to three million dollar housing allowances. It's ridiculous. Pastors with exorbitant passages or packages and financial packages and congregants blindly saying our pastor has need of a certain way of life. They forget scripturally what the example of Christ was. who did not have a home of his own, nor a place to lay his head. Not that pastors should live in deprivation. We understand other passages in Scripture speak of the necessity of uh, let, the, let, the muzzle, let the ox not be muzzled, uh, a, a, an apt analogy of pastors to oxen, but, 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 but it, a, an appropriate provision made for those who preach and teach. but not to such a degree that they are numbered amongst the most wealthy in our country. No man or woman is so essential to gospel ministry that the church should live in deprivation because of it, or that poor people should lose their own income in providing for their very rich pastor, especially these fools who say that they cannot fly coach in a regular airplane but must have an airplane of their own. I understand that there are some who minister deeply to other cultures and countries, and in order to facilitate their, their, their effective ministry of the word, they might in fact have a private airplane and fly themselves into foreign places of ministry and of missionary endeavor. But that's not what I'm talking about. We're talking about the Men who decide, well, what I need is a new $45 million Gulf Stream and do that on the backs of poor people. 
Well, clearly in Jesus' own day, the Pharisees and the chief priests and the scribes benefited deeply as they looked the other way and as they provided choice places of booths there at the back, there in the outer court of Gentiles for the typical pilgrim to get their spotless animal that it might come in and be a priest approved. You see what's happening? The approval of man becomes more paramount than the approval of God. Well, Malachi 3 spoke of this. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me, and suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you, whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. The day is coming when Jesus will sift through every person who approaches the throne of grace. Every person in the last day who will stand before God in the day of judgment. And he will sift through all of them. And all that is dross will be burned away. And all that is gold that is refined by fire will remain. Of anything of your practice of Christianity and of your private devotion to God and your hidden life with Christ and faithfulness and service to Him, will any of it remain? Is any of it done for Jesus? Or is it done for yourself? Are you here for you? Because you're required to be. Or it's necessary that you fulfill what others, uh, uh, you, what ob- obligations you owe to other people, and that's why you're here today. Or are you genuinely and sincerely seeking the Lord? Do you delight to, to be found in His house? Are you happy when others tell you, "Come, let us go up to the house of the Lord"? Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Let this stand as a testament to each one of us to make certain that on the day when Christ comes again, we are ready. And that what we offer up to God is sincere and true and in accord with his word. Not fulfilling the expectations of mankind, but pleasing our Father in heaven. Jesus goes on to say what the house, this house will be. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? I have been watching, declares the Lord, Jeremiah 7.11 and Isaiah 56.7, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. There's an important conclusion to come to here in light of this passage. The house of God, the church is not a noisy market, nor are hypocrites welcome in the worship of God. It's a disturbing trend, I think, to see churches that more and more are marketed, more and more follow a marketing principle of welcoming people into a house of coffee that we might in some way get them into the worship of God surreptitiously. Some see it as a welcome development to have a not not just a coffee station downstairs, which we all gather together around and munch a cookie and enjoy one another's fellowship, but but there out in the door is a 
there's a mixing studio for 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 Christian artists. There's a there's over there is a neon sign declaring that this is a restaurant uh, for people to eat in after church. And over there is a coffee house that one can come and especially it keeps hours during the worship service so that you can stay awake. God forbid we should train our bodies to stay awake for an hour in the house of the Lord. It's not necessarily true that these things are evil in and of themselves. They are not. But what's evil is the principle of the church that, that decides that, well, what we need to do is make the church more palatable to an unbelieving world. What we need to do is make our message so much more almost in a way deceiving to people such that the things that they have heard and the prejudices they have against God, they will they will see the beauty of what we offer and we will change and and adulterate our message to such a degree that they will they will not hear the negative, but they will see the positive and they will come and fall in love with Jesus and desire him above all things. Well it sounds Good, but Jesus comes in all of his refining glory. Jesus is love. But Jesus is also that refiner's fire, that launderer's soap, and he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will sift through the thoughts, the inner thoughts and intentions of every one of our hearts on the last great day when he comes in judgments and sits on, on his throne. I'm reminded during the days when there, the, 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 uh, the 40 days of purpose with uh, Rick Warren come from Saddleback Church out in California. And it seemed every church in the land bought into this approach to ministry. I remember hearing from a friend of mine in a large church in the south that Rick contacted him directly and actually got on a plane and came out to meet him, and there on the tarmac promised him in his church a certain amount of money if, in fact, they would incorporate this 40 days of purpose. When the church falls into marketing schemes, it loses its message. When the church falls into and makes use of marketing schemes, it is no longer the church. It has lost sight of the ministry of the gospel and it has become something altogether. And it sees its own perpetuation as its ultimate purpose rather than the proclamation of the gospel of God. Let the chips fall where they may. Let all those who would believe come. Come and receive water unto everlasting life. and Come and see, receive the water which Christ Himself will cause to well up within them and feed their very souls and cleanse their very souls of their sins. Come and let them buy without money. Instead, the church becomes something altogether. Come and join all of our latest advancements in Christianity. Come and find your place within the the great uh, massive conglomeration of the church. And make certain that you leave your gift on the way out. I don't know about you, but I've been in churches where after I left, even though I had sung together and stood with them, stood at the back, hopefully hopefully desirous of meeting someone, I've departed without a single hello or welcome or praise the Lord or 
welcome and who are you and an explanation of who they are. There have been some churches I have walked out of and shaken my feet off and said, Lord, you know. Let that never be true of this church. Let that never be true of you as God's people here. This church exists to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. It exists for God. It exists because of God. Most of these movements within the church today, if not all, in fact, are but counterfeit attempts by Satan to corrupt God's church. Counterfeit attempts by Satan to present something altogether different so that people will say, I've got religion. It's me and Jesus. And yet they don't understand God's word nor God's truth. They believed in nothing. There's a danger present in every ministry or movement or church to become an enterprise for pastors to become professionals, for the congregation to consider the church a club or a badge to be worn. We can't hold fast to these things. Jesus' words to the church in Revelation chapter 3 certainly show us that He's watching carefully over His church, that all His people belong to Him, and He is coming to rebuke and to discipline. And we need to be earnest to repent He stands at the door and he knocks. Judgment begins first with the household of God. And Christ has given himself. He has loved his church. And he's taken his church for himself. And it's his intention to sanctify her completely for the day of judgment. This is what Jesus will do when he comes again in the second time. He will purify, as it were, the temple. He will cleanse each of us of everything that defiles and works iniquity in us. And He will cast every worldly professor out of the church, out of its train. He will allow no worshiper or money or lover of gain to have a place in the glorious temple that will be His glorious bride. And He will exhibit that bride unstained to the world. The problem is, in Jesus' day, corruption and abuse had entered the, the church into the laity, most egregiously into the leaders of the day. And Christ casts out the ungodly as first order. It's a far more sober thought when we recognize that we are the temple of the living God, and He will just as severely cast out from within us all removing sin, cleansing us without mercy and without allowing us the freedom to turn ourselves into the marketplace of the world. Thank God. Thank God that He mercilessly, ultimately it is an act of mercy, though we may not feel it in the moment, but He deals aggressively with sin and He deals aggressively with worldliness and He will cleanse us of all these things in the last great day. How can the church be reformed from such a miserable marketplace condition? By making an immediate appeal to Scripture. By putting the Word of God foremost in its ministry and work. God's Word is always the basis for reformation and revival. His church is built on its foundation, the living Word. 
What is the church to do in its occupation and preoccupation? Prayer. To always be praying of the Lord. To always be seeking the Lord. Always be be kneeling before the throne of grace. Always seeking the Lord in His wisdom. Always seeking for and crying out for the Word faithfully, unadulterated. We see thirdly, wisdom. Wisdom. The people could not find anything in verse 48 that they might do, for all the people were hanging on on to every word he said. The word is ekremami. It means to hang upon the lips of a speaker. It, It means to listen very closely, to be very, very attentive. And they were listening to every single word that came out of the mouth of Jesus. It's an extraordinary perspective for God's people to take to listen to every single word. And I wonder what our own attitudes about the word really are. The word proclaimed on Sunday mornings in the preaching of the pulpit, regardless of who stands here, inasmuch as the word is in line with the word of God, prayerfully pleading before God sought uh, the blessing of the Holy Spirit and the unction of the Holy Spirit in the preaching of that word, inasmuch as the pastor preaches the word of God, it is the very word of God from that pulpit. God is speaking. And I wonder whether, whether our perspective as we come to that word, whether it is in line with what we observe in these crowds as they hang on every word that Jesus said. I recognize I'm not Jesus. I recognize no pulpit, no pastor can stand in the pulpit and and be Jesus in that sense. But inasmuch as he teaches and preaches the word of God, Jesus is speaking in his word. The question is asked in our confession, what is required of those who hear the word preached? It is required of those that hear the word preached that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, prayer, examine what they hear by the scriptures, receive the truth with faith, get a good night's sleep the night before as well. They they listen with love and meekness and readiness of mind as the word of God meditate and confer over it, hide it in their hearts and bring forth the fruit of it in their lives. These people listened to every word that Jesus shared. On Sundays, do we anticipate the word of God? Do we delight in that word? I'll tell you, dear friends, if we don't love the word of God, then God will take it from us. If we don't delight in the word of God, one day you'll find yourself in a country where the word of God is no longer in prominence and you yourselves have no further access to it, and God has withdrawn your own light and wisdom and understanding, and what you have seen and heard is no longer of benefit to your soul. Is that ultimately the judgment of God against men and women, boys and girls, who have no time for daily Bible reading, who have no interest in the Word of God, who refuse to take it up and at least make some semblance of an effort to commit it to memory that we might not sin against the Lord. Thy word have I committed 
Uh, Thy word have I committed unto my heart that I might not sin against you. Are you like most typical Christian families here in the Western world? Multiple copies of Scripture at home barely ever cracked open? Are you opening the Bible and reading it with your children? Are you opening the Bible and reading it with your friend? Do you take the Word of God with you in some form when you go into your workplace? Do you love the Word of God? Do you love the Word of God? The day is coming, most assuredly, when the Word of God will no longer be tolerated here in our country where the wisdom of man and the wisdom of the the sages and the wisdom of the scientists seems to be preeminent. The day is coming when the Word of God will no longer be tolerated. Paul warned Timothy about this. In many ways, we observe it even in our own present generation. How will you know the Word if the Word will no longer be tolerated? How will you hear it? Will your own soul and your memory preach to you of the wealth of what you understand and know about the Word of God? Or will the day come when the Bibles will be taken away or the church will no longer be permitted to worship and you will not know the Word of God because God in His Word has warned there will be a famine. A famine not of food, but of the Word of God. Fourthly and finally, we see authority. The ruling priests and the scribes and the elders, they equal the Sanhedrin. They're the religious rulers of the day, and they will resurface later in Jesus' trials and as his accusers. Their presence is ominous. There are 71 of them. They meet in the Lishkat Ha-Gazit. It's a building half in and half out of the temple. They are law experts. They are teachers. They are lay elders. This is... The group of men who have decided Jesus Christ must die. They have decided they, they, would, they will bribe Judas with 30 pieces of silver. <clears throat> they will coerce various false witnesses to bear false witness of Jesus. One question is posed two different ways. You have authority, do you? Or who gave it to you? Do you have authority? Who gave you authority? <clears throat> Well, authority is something we struggle with as human beings, don't we? Some of us don't like authority at all. We like to wield it, but we don't like when it's wielded against us. You aren't the boss of me. You don't own me. Societal mantra is question authority, while God's principle is submit to earthly authorities, for they are God's servants. It doesn't mean that we should be walkovers, that we should uh, bend over backward in every, every, every circumstance and not assert legal rights. It doesn't mean that. But those who are in a position of authority over us, we are to acknowledge that authority because they are, in fact, God's servants. That's why we should respect our leaders, even when we disagree vehemently with them, which we are able to do. We can be in disagreement and still be godly in our character. We ought not to be vile. We ought not to use wicked and worldly language to describe them. 
We ought to be respectful and kind. We ought to seek their greater good. We ought to pray for them and speak well of them in as much as we are able. And at the same time to speak in clear ways about the ways in which they rule that is in contradiction to God and his word, proclaiming what God himself will do if they do not turn from their wicked ways. The intention of these men is to catch Jesus in a position where he either defiles himself or defies defies the authority of the Romans or the authority of God that the ruling class believes they carry. Pursuing self-incrimination ultimately by Jesus is what they're after. And so they want to develop a charge within the scope of their law that would lead to justifiable grounds for prosecution. Perhaps we think, well, Jesus... Jesus really needs to just tell them, come out and say it. Just come out and tell them who you are. Say who you are and be done with it. I speak in the authority of my Father and your Father. I speak under the authority of the name of God, the the matchless and eternal God. The problem is, if he does that... They will then take him into their hands and into their custody and before Friday and the day when Jesus intends to be found in the grave and to submit to that process, there are three days of ministry still yet to be completed. And Jesus, who is sovereign, is overruling in these circumstances and refuses to be given over to them until he is ready. And so he says, I have a question for you. He catches them at their own game. Let me ask you, don't we see already, and didn't they see already, in the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, the authority of God? Didn't they see in, uh, the, the, the blind whose eyes have been opened and the ears of those who were deaf and uh, who could not speak and they were cleansed those who are consumed with demonic presence and influence, who were healed and cleansed and stood before God in repentance and enjoyed the forgiveness of God of their sins, and the house was cleaned, and now Jesus was living and residing within them. Don't they see the authority of God in those things? And as he spoke and explained the word of God, standing in the house of the Lord, time after time, through three years of public ministry, didn't they see and hear the very authority of God? And in John the Baptist, the one who had come, the voice crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Prince of Peace to come, calling for the people of God to turn in repentance to God. Don't they hear the very authority of God? And how about the Word of God that was spoken from within audible hearing of the crowds when He was baptized by John, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. Of course they knew who Jesus was. They knew full well who He claimed to be. The other Gospels tell us that they knew who He was, what baptism John's was, and they rejected the very purpose of God for them, we're told. Peter calls them false priests, deceivers, waterless springs, men whom it would have been better if they had not heard nor seen the righteous son. Hebrews 7 tells us that they were men who held a temporary office, an impermanent position, 
and that Jesus Christ's headship and authority are superior and permanent and better in every way. The religious authorities are looking for a way, an opportunity to strike, but Jesus will do all that is in accord with his own mind and the will of the Father. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14 says this, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And that man... That that divine being now in human form stood before them and they questioned his authority. That son of man is what I intended to say. Jesus responds with that bargain. If you'll answer me, I'll answer you. Of course, they're unwilling. They're unwilling to answer him. If they say it was from God, then he will say, well, why haven't you? repented in the same way and believed in me. If they say, well, it was not from God, the crowds will have their heads because they loved John the Baptist and many of them were led to into the faith and the expectation of the messianic hope through John's ministry. And their prejudice was put on display by what virtue of what Jesus asked. Their hearts are hardened and they are blind to the miracles, the audible testimony from heaven, the resurrection of the dead, and all the rest of it. They're just like Richard Dawkins who said, if I stand before God one day after death and he asks me, why didn't you believe? I'll tell him, not enough evidence. Enough evidence is never the issue, dear friend. It's, It's never the issue. There's not a single person on the face of this earth, whoever was or whoever will be or who is today, who doesn't believe because they just have never been shown or haven't had enough testimony within their own heart or in the nature which God Himself has provided or in the proclamation of the Gospel or in written form or some other form. The inner whispering of their own heart and the testimony of the Holy Spirit, one way or the other, has testified to the truth of God and they know it well. They have refused to believe. Jesus stands in a position of authority. This is what everyone seems to question. However, it's true. All authority has been given to me on heaven, in heaven and on earth. You and and I should never question him. Perhaps you're wondering why you must yield to his authority because he is prophet, priest and king. He is the eternal Lord. Maybe there will be some who will question you. You've heard from them already. By whose authority do you do these things? What leads you to conclude that my practice of spirituality is wrong? What leads you to think that you have truth and I don't? What leads you to believe that you have it right and I wrong? How can you be so narrow-minded and rigid? How can you be so closed off to the idea that there's only one truth? Truth is a triggering word in our generation. Reality 
understanding God. You think you only have direct revelation from God? Yours cannot be the only way. Isn't it possible that all the rest of us are seeking God in our own way, but we're all heading toward the same eventual result? No, it's not possible. There is a way which seems right to a man, but the end therein lies in destruction. Do not lean on your own understanding. We are told in Scripture... Perhaps the truth of it all is <clears throat> if you reject the Lord Jesus Christ, His command to repent, your questions really ultimately are refusals and your rejection of His authority is a rejection of grace and mercy. And Jesus this day weeps over you. Would that you had seen. Would that you had come. Would that you would respond to His cry. Come unto me all who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. The difference between the true groups, those most open to repentance and faith, and those who are made aware of their sins and open to God's grace, and those who refuse the claims of the gospel and of Christ Jesus, the only difference is the regenerating, converting, illuminating power and work of the Holy Spirit. So what can you do today if you are lost in your sins? You, you just simply do not see and you can't understand. Will you receive and repent and humble yourself and come to Jesus Christ? Will you, will you obey the command of Christ to come? Will you receive the gospel today? And, and if you can't understand and you really don't grasp these things, will you at least bow your head and say, God. Will you enable your Holy Spirit? Will you send forth your Holy Spirit? Open my eyes to see. Unstop my ears to hear. And help me to believe. You most assuredly will do it because he is a wonder-working, sight-giving, soul-saving God. Let's pray.